millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. Oh, give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. And what we got this week, well, myself and Gary have got Hague at War, 1915. Uh, and we're very much looking forward to that, are we, Gary? Yeah, it's your, your, your birth, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is the year of my birth. 10th, 10th of January, 1915, was my birthday. Yep, and uh, so uh, so where, where are we? We better say where we are, hadn't we? So uh, at the start of 1915, we find Haig, uh, who we've been following in four or five podcasts, I've no idea how many, through his whole military career. He's in command of First Army, which is made up of First Corps, the Fourth Corps and the Indian Corps. Fine body of men, all of them. I noticed that you've added First Corps since you sent the notes out, Pete. Why, why, why might that be? That, that's because you reminded me after I'd missed them out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great start. At least you got the date yeah, right. Yeah, 1915 is a date I get wrong occasionally, isn't it? <laughs> Anyway, um, so uh, now who who are they under? Uh, well, First Army and Second Army, which is commanded by your old friend, Smith Dorian. They're under someone who's not a friend of ours, really, but uh, Field Marshal Sir John French. Uh, he's in he's in overall command. Uh, now, Haig, what, Haig had just had quite a successful end to 1914 in the, the defence of Ypres in November, so much so that actually he'd been complimented by Sir John French for his role, hadn't he? Well, he had. He'd done brilliantly. As a defensive battle, it had been a fine piece of generalship, worthy of Wellington himself. <laughs> Sorry. So Wellington had been to the officer speech school. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think he established it, didn't he? Anyway, so what we find... Uh, now, please think of... Uh, Haig is just one of many different generals who are uh, up and down the Western Front on, on both sides, uh, British, French, German, Belgian, they're all facing this incredibly complex military conundrum, uh, the, the most complex of the, of the modern age of that, so up to that time. Couldn't have been afterwards, could it? Um, and uh, can, can, let's, can you give us an idea of what, this, what, what, is, what is this uh, conundrum? What, what is this Gordian knot that they failed to cut? The, the soldiers on both sides are, are well dug in, although, as you pointed out on other podcasts, the uh, the defensive systems of, of early 1915 are quite simple compared to, to later in the war. But one thing was really certain, a defending garrison tucked away below ground level behind masses of tangled barbed wire could deploy bolt-action rifles and enfilading heavy machine guns to deadly effect against troops who were attempting to cross what ultimately become known as no man's land so um, any anyone caught in the open i think gary you're saying that, that uh, they'd be they'd be they'd be just scrunched by combination yeah, of I mean, let's let's not forget artillery artillery absolutely if you're caught in the open now uh, you're incredibly vulnerable to artillery and uh, You've got a quote, I believe, from somebody from history who recognises this. Uh, someone I, of course, identify with strongly. <laughs> I, I can see why. He went to French officer school. <laughs> Napoleon won. Although I think I'm probably more like Napoleon III. 
hapless. Anyway, this is what Napoleon said. Never do what the enemy wants for the very reason that he wants it. Avoid a battleground that he has reconnoitred and studied, and with even more reason, ground that he has fortified and where he is entranched. I am speechless. You've just said I'm speechless. That impression has to rank up there with none. Are you saying, are you saying it's rank? It's rank. <laughs> anyway, so Napoleon could warn against it from the past, but what alternative was there for the Allies at this time other than to attack fortified positions? There is no way round. They'd had the race to the sea, hadn't they? There's, there's 45 positions from the Channel, that sploshy thing, to Switzerland, that neutral hilly thing. Uh, they, these are they, there's no easy way. There's nothing. Now, what? Where are the Germans in all this? So, so where do we find the Germans, Gary, at this point? Because they're, they're, they're actually, do you know what? They're quite buggered, aren't they? To use a, a, te- a highly technical term, but. Yeah, I mean, don't forget their plan was for a quick war and uh, it was entirely designed to avoid a war on two fronts and that's exactly what they've got at this point. And what are these two fronts? Well, you've France, got uh, France, France and Russia. And I'm missing out Britain there because Britain's only just be getting mobilised. It's not there in full strength and won't be until 1916. But she is. Britain's sort of slightly invulnerable, isn't she? Why, why do you think Britain is... Almost invulnerable to the Germans. Well, as we've said before, the, the, they're relatively safe behind the senior service, Pete, behind the, uh, the the Royal Navy. That that distinguished service that once nearly had you, because that's what you originally meant to join, wasn't it? It was, yeah. But you were easily confused. <laughs> and led. <laughs> yes, even more of a... Now, uh, the, the, there was a new German Chief of General Staff, uh, General Erich von Falkenhayn, who has always been a personal favourite of mine. Uh, <laughs> I like him almost as much as Mackinson. Uh, and, and he's got a grim situation here. He's fighting on two fronts. Uh, um, what, what do you think his personal preference was? Well, he for, argues for a negotiated peace with one of the adversaries, doesn't he? And then his preference was for Russia. Uh, which yeah, I would, bet it was. <laughs> which would allow Germany to then concentrate on beating first France and then Britain. Now, he'd actually come to recognise Britain as the ultimate enemy of Germany. And probably rightly so in some sense, but a very minor partner at that stage of the alliance. But it's potential, it's things like that. And, and Falkenhayn had spotted that. Now, the, the German high command looks, well, there's some resemblance to a nest of vipers, isn't there really? Um, the, 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 uh, the, there's dissent to Falkenhayn, who was an unpopular man. He'd been Prussian Minister of War. He was not popular, uh, and probably with good reason in some senses, because he was a bit of a bastard. It's probably why I like him. Uh, now, who 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 is the opposition? Because there is an opposition almost party within the generals. Who is it? Well, it's it's largely the uh, the victors of the Battle of Tannenberg, Pete Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Now they were incredibly optimistic that outright victory could be achieved over Russia in 1915. Hmm. And and and, and doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the political backing. He doesn't have he doesn't the backing, have... does he? He doesn't have the authority to, to, to enforce his will. And he has to send a lot of his reserves, uh, his Western Front reserves, to the east. And there's, it's not just because of them two. They've also got Austria-Hungary is staggering and needs support. And uh, there's also the threat of Italy and Romania joining the Allies. So the, the Germans are buggered. They are in a terrible situation, one that will remain for most of the war. Uh, there is a very real argument that the, the Allies won the war at the Battle of the Marne. We've talked about this before, that the French won the war, in essence, in the Battle of the Marne. However, let's go on. Uh, how, in, in, on the other hand... The French and British aren't exactly in a great position, particularly the French uh, on the Western Front. Now, what's the big problem here on the Western Front, Gary? What? Come on, what, why? 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 Uh, we mustn't forget uh, that the, the Germans had actually been partially successful and they held large swathes of northern France. Now, what's particularly crucial about northern France is that it's the heartland of the French industrial area and it's in the Germans' hands. And Belgium, of course, all of Belgium, nearly. Yeah. Oh, ne- nearly. Sorry, sorry. But uh, when you look at Belgium, the bit we'd got left was very small, wasn't it? And of course, they're only about sixty miles from Paris, aren't they? 
So, uh, so, so now the the French commander in chief. So, do you think he was having an easy time from French politicians? French politicians are a notably calm and reasonable group. Uh, even to this day, we know that. Uh, how do you think they were reacting to the situ- the military situation? Were they were they calm and p- prepared to wait patiently? No, uh, I mean, the, the, for obvious reasons, the uh, French politicians wanted the invaders out of their country as soon as, poss- as possible. The question was how. Oh, so there's no no idea of just waiting until they could uh, passively maintain, you know, until they were ready. No, they, or, they had to get up. They had to get on with it. You know, had Falkenhayn reached out for a negotiated peace in the in the West, they would have rejected it. Well, they, they, they always did throughout the war, when, uh, later in the war when there were sort of things. Now, so the, the, we've talked about the, the, so the British and French generals, they're facing the same problems. Uh, the French are the ones who are really doing the experimentation. And I want to make this quite clear. Uh, so what, are, what, what do they have to do to win? What are the problems that face them? Let's brainstorm. What's the first problem? You, go, you do the... the, the well, the, as we the mentioned e- earlier, how are you going to get enough troops across no man's land to overrun the German front line? So how are you going to get them alive across? You can send them out, but what would arrive at the other end? Uh, what about... Uh, the other problem is there are increasing numbers of support trenches, uh, uh, second lines, if you like, but support trenches. That's a problem. Uh, what else is a problem? And this is a particular problem fighting the Germans at any time. Well, how do you consolidate? We've said before, the Germans always counterattack. So how are you going to consolidate against counterattack? And and uh, another thing, if you get a, a gap in the line, how are you going to exploit it? What are you going to send into the gap? Uh, Infantry is too slow, cavalry is too vulnerable. What are you going to do? If the gap's too narrow, it can be easily closed. If it's too wide, it might fail and you don't get through. Um, it, it, it's, uh, at this stage of the war, I think most people don't think further than taking the front line, do they? I mean, that that seems to be as far as they go. And then they tend to think, it'll be all right on the night. We'll, we'll, we'll sort something out when we get through Johnny Foreigner. Anyway, now let's talk about the French. What, what have they been up to, Gary? Because they, 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 they weren't resting over December, January. They, they, they were... They were fighting hard, weren't they? Well, we mentioned they got a dominant role, Peter. They always did have. But uh, in the early part of 1915, they'd had a really heavy winter's fighting. They had a series of major offences in the Artois region and Champagne areas. And we've covered some of those in other podcasts. But, you know, this fighting was, was starkly attritional, even at this stage by nature. Um, because, you know, they take a, a tactically significant position but then they'd lose it to a German counterattack. Then they'd retake it, and then they'd lose it again. So it's backwards and forwards all the time. So uh, it, 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 the, the, and whenever they seem to find a solution to anything, it must be like you when you were at TFL. You solved one thing, and in solving it, it uncovers or causes another problem. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's a terrible thing. The other thing is you can analyse the fighting. You could be an intelligent man into analysing the problem, uh, but you don't come up with the same answers. And which one is right? Perhaps they're all right. Perhaps none of them right. So some generals, they, they say they emphasise the difficulties in achieving a breakthrough and, and they want you to narrow, uh, sort of concentrate on specific points, uh, tactically significant uh, and others warn against narrow front attacks because this business of, of uh, 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 if you you can shoot into them from both sides and and it's easy to block um so so it's one of those things neither views right is it but but uh, neither's wrong uh, so what, where are the British then? Uh, so what, what, what's the situation for the British? What's Joff want from the British in 1915? What's his main aim? Well, he wants them to take a greater share of the front line. He, 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 his, in, uh, he wants them to take from the, the Ypres salient all the way down to La Basse. Uh, this, the, I mean, there's a reason for this, Pete. This allows the French to release more troops for their own offensives. That's why he wants to do it. It's not just that he wants the Brits to take this area. He has a reason for that. 
And I've got to say, the British are pretty uncooperative about this. The one piece of cooperation is they launched the attack of Nerve Chapelle, Battle of Nerve Chapelle on the 10th of March. And this is almost a sop to the French for, for not doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, now, we, we had a podcast on this, and I urge you to listen to it. And we're going to glide over. The reason we can't miss it out is this is so important to 1915 because it defines the outline of how British offensives are made or not made. And the reasons it fails are the reasons that will dog British offensives for the rest. So we are going to cover some of it again, but in outline. Uh, now, um, the, 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 the attack is made on the salient of Nerve Chapelle. Uh, it, it will take place with uh, Haig's First Army launch it. His first four, sorry, not his first corps, his fourth corps and the Indian corps are the ones that are sent in. And their idea is they'll, uh, they'll, they'll smash through and then push on towards the Albers Ridge. Which, which is uh, four kilometres away. It is, or three miles, <laughs> and uh, and is the tactical objective, Gary. It is the tactical objective, yes. <laughs> oh, Gary, I'm disappointed with your lack of uh, argument about that. But that's the ultimate. I mean, it's the bigger tactical ob- objective. The local ones are, are, are near. Now, um, that offers the, op- the the real any sort of the strategic objective is perhaps the the German communications on Lille, which is the next stage. Now, uh, we we've looked at how uh, Hague plans. Uh, and, and what happens is the artillery bombardment is everything to smash the trenches and everything. And they move all the almost almost sorry, all the artillery batteries there. Uh, they register them. They draw up a fire program, a detailed fire program. They work out how to cut the barbed wire using shrapnel. All this is worked on and we talked about in the podcast Uh that one thing I want to I'm, I can't leave is that the debate is to the length of the the, the bombardment. Uh, should it be a short hurricane bombardment or should it be a more lengthy affair to ensure the destruction of the targets? Now, uh, this later becomes, uh, in the war, becomes the, 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 the difference between destruction and su- suppression. Uh, but uh, what what the, what is the point of this? Why can't they just have a hurricane, a long hurricane bombardment? Why, Gary? Why can't they have a long hurricane bombardment in 1915? Well, one of the reasons, even though you're saying they've massed the guns together, there's not that many of them. There's only 282 field guns. And listen to this, Pete, 36 heavier pieces. Now, and listen. we've mentioned before as well the ammunition shortage in 1915. That's it. So... They've got they've got one gun for every six yards. I mean that that's rarely equal throughout the, the war, but they still have an ammunition problem. There's only enough for two or three days, and that means you can't have a three or four day preliminary bombardment, or you won't have any when the battle starts. So it had to be a hurricane bombardment. Now, uh, the other thing about Nerve Chapelle, which we talked about in the podcast, and we're not going to repeat, is the importance of photograph uh, the the Royal Flying Corps providing photographic reconnaissance and artillery observation, uh, and 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 the link that was established through this between Hague and Trenchard, uh, which was very important to the rest of the war. Um, we also talked about the, 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 the planning of the infantry and how they use these aerial photographs, the painstaking preparations, preparing communication trenches, the assembly trenches. I know you're a logistics person. Where are they going to go from? They can't attack all from the front line. They need special trenches. And they attack on the morning of the 10th of, uh, of, of March. Um, from these assembly trenches uh, they also have they, they, they've got a range of push forward machine guns and mounting guns and 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 they try to improve communications so when the attacks start it, it is mostly wouldn't you say successful in in one way isn't it well certainly in the earlier part of the day absolutely i mean most of the objectives are, are, are taken by nine o'clock um but There's a couple of uh, of snafus where the artillery hadn't got up snafus uh, well, not for the people who get slaughtered, because there's a couple of battalions, two or three battalions, get get shot to bits uh, uh, because the artillery wasn't there. And that makes it clear, isn't it? What's, what's the dominant thing? Is it brave, heroic second lieutenants leading their men, or is it artillery support? Which would you say was the most Well, artillery support. And as you mentioned, you know, the officers were well briefed, and they were well briefed. Um, but as, as they were becoming casualties... The NCOs were having to take take over, who were perhaps not quite so well briefed. So there, there were a number of problems developing. And what what happens is uh, it it falls apart 
they get through the British, the German front line, and then are they going to take Arbus Ridge? Well, no, they're not actually going to get anywhere near bloody Arbus Ridge. They don't get very far at all. Uh, and we've, we've got to go through the problems. I know we did it in the podcast, but we have to do it again. What are the problems? Well, you've got, a, you've got pockets of German resistance. You've got, to, you, you've got to winkle them out. And that's proving difficult and very, very costly. They're good soldiers, the Germans, aren't they? Good, well-trained soldiers. Uh, People always say, oh, the British fight to the death. The Germans will fight to the death as well. Uh, uh, so uh, now, uh, confusion. Uh, do you think that plays a role? role? I mean, you, you've planned all you like. You've seen all the maps, but you've mentioned if your officers and perhaps your NCOs as well are killed, do you know where you are on the map? Would you have known as a young uh, private soldier? No, absolutely not. Um, uh, stress of combat. A lot of these troops are inexperienced. That they that that would lead to them being confused. I'd be confused as a newt. Um, so uh, <clears throat> and delays multiple. Do you think the communications hold up? Because this is going to be a problem for the rest of the war. No, uh, they don't. The... They don't. I mean, they've taken care with the telephone communications, but of course they're they're only going to survive um, if they're not hit. And and I think we mentioned in the podcast the the. Uh, the generals, particularly Rawlinson, had no idea what was going on. Or Wilcox, no, neither of them. That's the, sorry, that's uh, what Rawlinson was in charge of uh, Fourth Corps and Wilcox was in charge of the Indian, Indian Corps. Corps yeah. No, not the slightest. And, and, and Rawlinson nearly, nearly lost his job because he lied about it. And it's only Haig's protection that kept him in. Uh, it's one of the reasons he was so kowtowed a bit to Haig in 16. Was, and they, uh, they, really... they struggled to get a grip because they, they've not got the information that they need. I'm going to have to disagree strongly with you. They didn't just struggle. They didn't get a grip at all. Uh, sorry, Gary, I know we don't want to argue in public. No, I, I, I accept that magnanimously. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that means. <laughs> now, of course, as, as this is sort of delaying and, and extending, what are the Germans up to during all this time, Pete? Do, do they just lie back and think of Germany? No, they bring up the reserves. They uh, they launch local counterattacks, and then and then they bring the reserves launch counterattacks. They stem the flow. How big's the gap? Go and have a guess, because we we had trouble with this in the podcast. We haven't looked still. Well, I was going to say, I'm, I'm hoping you checked, but uh, I think it's two thousand <laughs> no, yards. Although yeah, no. at one point during the podcast, you said four thousand yards, but I, so I'd yeah. say it's somewhere between two and four thousand yards, Pete. Yeah, uh, most carry, <laughs> and, and they they block it. Uh, uh, there's better, lots of casualties. We've discussed this. Now, we want to move on from Nerve Chappelle, but in a sense, it's difficult to move on from Nerve Chappelle because it's it's a failure. Why is it a failure? Well, it's there's aspects of it as success. And it must be, in analysing any situation, Gary, you've got to look at it. What succeeded and what didn't? Well, what, been, what? it's a failure. There were 11,652 casualties. That alone makes it a failure because was it worth that cost? And I think the simple answer is no. But there had been a demonstration that we could take the German front lines. Ah, take the German front line in March 1915. In March 1915. Uh, we are in accord. Um, we are in accord, yeah. That, 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 that's what we could do. But what then? And 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 what do the lessons mean? What And, and this is quite interesting because Henry Rawlinson is always spouted as the man who sees the truth. And this is, he develops or, or, or is claimed to have developed uh, the concept of bite and hold attacks. Now, this is, uh, you're going to be uh, Lieutenant General Sir Henry Rawlinson. As we said, he's in charge of Fourth Corps. Uh, he doesn't seem that chastened for his... Um, because he blamed other people for the failure. Uh, 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 tell me what he says. Because I think he, it's, it's interesting. What we want to do now is what I call bite and hold. Bite off this of the enemy's line, like Nerve Chappelle, and hold it against counterattack. The bite can be made without much loss, and if we choose the right place and make every preparation to put it quickly in a state of defence... There ought to be no difficulty in holding it against the enemy's counterattacks and inflicting on him at least twice the loss that we have suffered in making the bite. Now, uh, first, there's two things I want to make. One is a personal one. You're uh, you're having a bit of trouble with your bite, aren't you? Could you just explain what's happened? No. 
Gary's, uh, one of his teeth fell out last night. And uh, was he eating toffee? Were you eating toffee, Gary? No. What were you eating? Uh, crisps. <laughs> crisps and your tooth fell out. Mm. Mm, diseased of uh, diseased of Tottenham, I think. Yes. Right. So, but that that's that's stupidity, uh, and therefore no one will be surprised to have to have me saying that. Um, the, 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 what is the problem with Rawlinson's genius idea? Well, we mentioned it earlier. That, that there's neither the artillery nor the shells to make bite and hold feasible in so you could, 1915. So you could say that's what you should do all you like, but you haven't got the raw materials to do it, have you? It's just not possible. No. Which, and uh, this is what's interesting. So I, I give him credit for what he's saying. And, and are you, we find in Gallipoli they start to do this. It's very interesting. Gallipoli, other people are thinking of this. And in July, the, uh, late June and July, there are bite-and-hold attacks, as we would call them. Um, there's something else wrong with bite-and-hold as well. Uh, it's not just that it, they couldn't do it. There's something well, else wrong. It's too slow. And we've mentioned before, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of uh, political pressure that's being imposed on both Sir John French and Joffre um, to do things and to do things quickly. Now, after the battle, they've worked out that the gap, the frontage attacked is too narrow. Uh, it's the gaps too easily plugged. Uh, we've talked about it before, and I, I will definitely remember to put the picture of you with your finger in that uh, that uh, boat <laughs> block you know it's too easy to block uh, but if you want to widen the front you need more shells you need a lot more shells uh, if you double the width of the front you need double the shells if you triple or quadruple or, or it, it 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 needs millions more shells in the end and not only uh, shells you've got to have the guns to fire them uh, absolutely. And and you need heavy guns. Uh, but but uh, now, so what's going on? Uh, so what happens in 1915? Well, uh, Joffre is engaged in the main fighting, the May offensives. He's confident that the French have learnt the lessons of the previous offensives in Artois, the Champagne and the Saint-Mihel areas. And he tries to take advantage of the German reduction of strength that we discussed, that they'd sent a lot of their reserves uh, to, the, to, 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 uh, to the Eastern Front. Uh, so he attacks again on Vimy Ridge. Uh, the thing is, who'd learnt most? Now, this is the problem. Because it's not just the French learning lessons, and I'm sorry to, to go away from the British, but this is we have to because the British are minor importance. Um, the uh, had the French, or I suppose the British, grasped the method of breaking through, or did the Germans discover a more effective way of keeping them out? Because both sides are trying. Uh, so what are the Germans doing? They're doing it to the French and they're doing it to the British. What are they doing? So how do they change their tactics, their defensive methods? What's the first thing they do? Well, they, they're still dismantled that the, the front line was to be fed, to defended to the death, as you mentioned. But... but um, there, there was, there was far more multiple defensive lines. Now they they were connected by communication trenches. They had deep dugouts to protect the troops under the artillery bombardment. And as we mentioned before, every inch of ground that's lost, they immediately counterattacked and tried to re, to regain. And the trenches are being strengthened. What so what they're building are stronger. There's more use of concrete. They've got specially protected machine gun posts, carefully sighted to get enfilade fire across uh, no man's land. And the other thing is, we mentioned the barbed wire. Now, in some ways, we we sort of over exaggerated that because that's the problem to come. But the, 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 it's not a couple of strands anymore across no, it's no man's land. Thicker and thicker and thicker, and you know it, it's. It's very, very difficult. And, and again, in other podcasts, it's not just there to, to, to stop you. It, it sometimes used to channel you where they want you to go so that you're, you're, you're then, you know, at risk of enfilade fire from, from the machine guns that they've sighted. 
So it's not a simple learning curve. It's not one problem that you have to learn to overcome. It's a problem that leads on to another problem that leads on to another problem, which then, for you, and, and, and this is the old analogy, which I worked out with a chap called George Webster. I used to think it was like a roller coaster up and down not a, lo- a learning curve, but then somebody called George Webster pointed out it's like two roller coasters because both sides are doing things and it depends, you're high or low depending on what the other side. So if the other side dig another trench system, you're going down. No matter if, you, even if you use the same tactics, you're going down. And, and, and if you invent a new method of attack, then you go up. It, it's, uh, it's the success. It, it's, it's your own tactical innovations uh, and, and and how you've assimilated the lessons of the, of, of the fighting versus the tactical advances of the enemy. Uh, that, and this is all limited by the availability of military resources, i.e. guns and shells. Uh, it, it's a complex... It's, it's, so, so something that works on Tuesday might not work next Tuesday. Uh, so what are the French up to? Where are they attacking? Well, they're attacking where they always attack. Yeah, they've launched another huge assault on Vimy Ridge. Um, the BEF had made some supporting attacks uh, that uh, ultimately lead to the Battle of Albers Ridge. So we're, we're called on to attack at Albers Ridge in support of the French. Do you think uh, Sir John French has much choice about this attack? No, none at all, really. And who's responsible for it? Who's going to make this one? Well, pretty obviously judging by the area, it's going to be Hague again, isn't it? Yeah, it, it turns to Hague time. again, and it's the First Army responsible for the assault. Well, there's two attacks, really. They converge on Obers Ridge, uh, uh, and this is uh, the Battle of Obers Ridge. They attack at 0540 on 9th of May. Uh, the, the, the bombardment, it's a wider front. It's two fronts, and it's wider, and, and they have a 40-minute bombardment this time, so it's five minutes longer, fired by 625 guns. But it's, it's inadequate. Why is it inadequate? Well, you got the. We mentioned it before. The increased German defensive preparations. Uh, so they've got more than one line. Yeah. So so it's no longer, as it was at uh, uh, earlier parts in nineteen fifteen. The Germans, as we've said, have learnt as well, and it's so much it's a couple more... of months in that eight weeks, and and also it's a wider front. Uh, so what happens to the infantry? How does it go for them? Do they take the first line? Well, no. I mean. <sighs> I've got a quote here uh, that talks about um, how they're dealing with the the improved defences of the Germans. And this is 2nd Lieutenant Lionel Sotheby. Now, there's a point I want to make about this front that's quite before we start. And that is it shows that the depth of the battlefields increases. It's not just the front line anymore, is it? Because the German guns are reaching back to sweep along the front line, or they're even splattering shells along communication trenches. It's all developing. And this quote you're going to read is perfect to illustrate that. Yeah, it it shows the danger that the troops are in before they even get to the front line. So this is 2nd Lieutenant Lionel Sotheby of the 2nd Black Watch. And he says... High explosive shrapnel and common shrapnel were sweeping the 500 yards of communication rampart leading up to the front line. A solid wall of shells seemed to be everywhere. The enemy's ramparts and all the country for further than 800 yards was in a fog of yellow smoke through which flashes appeared. These fumes literally darkened the sun. All around were crashing branches and trees being felled. Occasionally, a huge shell would land in a ruined house and the brick dust would form a London fog in itself. Every now and then, a huge black smoke shell would blow up in our rampart, killing and maiming people. Campbell, Meredith's servant, was unrecognisable, minus two arms, head and one leg. Carson, in my platoon, was worse off as his remains could have been buried in a cigarette case. Meanwhile, Heavy German rifle fire was sweeping overhead, so I kept under the parapet. It seemed impossible to me that we could ever reach the first line. At last, we march off. We rushed along the communication trench at awful speed. The wounded were crawling about in a passage, and dead there were innumerable. At last, we reached the front line, but what a sight. It was six foot deep and in places seven foot deep with men. Now, that's all that is before they got anywhere near the British front line. They've not gone over no man's hand. They're being hammered. The battlefield is getting deeper. 
the German guns. Uh, it, 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 it's, uh, to sum up Albers Ridge, it's not one of a Hague's finest hours, but for, I don't particularly blame him. What, 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 why, why do you think they failed? Why does First Army fail, Gary? Well, the German trenches are improving, as we said. Their artillery are beginning to act in concert with the capability to generate impenetrable barrages which could seal off the front. So the, the British assaulting infantry were even more likely to be overwhelmed by the German counterattack. So even if they got across no man's land, they'd get ambushed. Uh, it's not ambushed, but they get they get slung out quickly. So not enough guns, not enough ammunition, and there's another problem with the ammunition that's increasing because they rush they rush manufacturing ammunition. What happens in industry if you rush something? Well, a number of them are duds, aren't they? Um, and uh, you know, it, you're just throwing a large rock in that case. Um, because it it just doesn't explode. Great analogy. <laughs> That's right. Uh, now, so Haig calls off the attack. Uh, he doesn't make the second thrust. Uh, they, 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 they have made no contribution to the main French battle at the Artois. And the French, the French, do you think the French accept this? Do you think the French say, ah, oh, it's all right, Ned boys, just uh, carry on as you are? No, there's further further pressure, Pete, and, and ultimately it, it leads to another attempt at the Battle of Festiburg, which is launched on the 15th of May. I've got a horror of the Battle of Festiburg for some reason. I remember, uh, I don't know whether it was because the Liverpool regiments were involved or, or, or and I had some linkage with that at the time, but not at the time, but reading about it since... Uh, do you think they were able to pro- provide, you know, Nerve Chappelle, they planned for a month, hadn't they? Do you think in a week they were no. ready for, for this battle? Or no, do you think they were? No. Th- it's a disaster as well. I mean, they're inexperienced, aren't they? And, and they're still not mastered the complexities of artillery support. The detailed command and control arrangements and the multi-layered briefings and special training required that they need to launch an attack at short notice. They can't do it. And one underlying thing is they've ne- they still haven't got counter battery fire sorted, and let's be honest, they wouldn't have until late on in the Somme. Uh, they, they they had never put enough guns, so the German guns were always free to fire. It was a, a disaster. Now, do you think uh, Joff? He's, the spring offensives fail. We can't look at the French, but they do fail. Uh, terribly painful. Uh, they make our slaughter look like chicken feed. Uh, uh, that's not to demean the British law, the sacrifice. It's to point out that the French sacrifice was immeasurably larger. Does it change Joff's perspective on things? No, he doesn't change his, his view one iota. It, his view was that the situation's not changed. The, the French and the British still had to bear their burden on the Western Front to help Russia, who were undergoing a trial by fire on the Eastern Front. So he does see the bigger strategic picture. He does. Now, um, so they're going to go again, aren't they? Go again. Uh, the opera. The, this is so he starts planning for the autumn offensives. Does he? Does he try and tweak his operational methods? Do you think? Yeah, he tries because you know he, he's trying to reflect what had been learnt in the earlier campaigns, but the, the the lessons were by no means clear, and there was a wide diversion as to the best way to proceed. Um, mutually supporting major offensive or methodical attacks in carefully planned and prepared steps or a largely defensive strategy designed to conserve the manpower. It, so different generals are putting these plans forward and Joff sort of sat in the middle trying to sort it out. Yeah, uh, it, none, none of them are really wrong and that, that ultimately is the French tragedy, Peter, isn't it? None of them are wrong per se, but none really offered a coherent solution to the problems of waging a successful offensive in the conditions at that time on the Western Front. In 1915, that it, what, all those three methods would flounder, would flounder. What's happening to the Germans? Well, they, week by week and month by month, their, their lines continue to get stronger. There's more trenches, more barbed wire, deeper dugouts concrete fortifications and self-contained redoubts. Now, a, a whole second trench system's established. This is a couple of miles trench behind. Trench system, yeah, not trench, line. Not line, trench system. This is a couple of miles, miles behind the first. So the idea being that it's out of the uh, field artillery range and where possible, it's sighted on a reverse slope to avoid direct observation. And we see things like this on the Somme, where the first trench ship, and then the second trench 
system is behind the hills. Yeah, that. that yeah. Um, the German artillery—they're beginning to change things as well. They—they—they've got different pre-plotted, pre-planned, pre-prepared barrage techniques. So, so, so let, let, what, 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 how could barrages different? What sort of barrages can they have? What, how are they different, Gary? How? How? Well, they have different barrages for different stage of an attack. So, for example, they have a barrage that's ready to fall on the forming up trenches. Um, they have a, a, a whirlwind bombardment of the French line and they have a curtain barrage which is laid across no man's land to break up the attack. And that also leads to the isolation of any troops who are fortunate enough to break into the German front line. Now, we, saw, we see an example of that for, on the 1st of July at Gomacor, for instance, where the, the shell fire drops behind 56th Division and isolates them in the front line. They're, they're basically cut off from reinforcements. And then what happens? The Germans counterattack and, and, and sling them out. Uh, so uh, now, uh, so what does Joff do? That, that these people are thinking about what's happening, but uh, his staff, of course, put it forward a range of options to do. His generals are suggesting or, or moaning, or <laughs> generals do moan, or, or trying to put different viewpoints. And Joff comes to the decision that they, they're going to launch a massive autumn offensive in, the, guess where, Gary? Guess where? Um, the Ar- the Artois? Champagne and Champagne. Area. I think they're trying to get control of the uh, champagne. On, and, and this will occur on the 25th of September. Um, now, uh, now, there was what, some dissent from the British, wasn't there? The, the, the British Secretary of State for War, Field Marshal Lord Kitchener. Uh, I tell you, there's a curse on the House of Kitchener. And Sir John French would have preferred to wait until 1916 because they believed that the, all the Allies... All the Allies would be ready to attack at full strength. Because Italy's joined the war by this time. Yeah. Uh, joined in, I think, June 1915. So, uh, so yeah, so everybody would be ready. Um, but there's a problem. There's a problem. Uh, how, are the, how are the Russians doing on the Eastern Front? Yeah, they, that in no way recognises the, the, the reality of the continuing deterioration in the Russian position. They're doing badly. They're doing badly. Fighting bravely, by the way, uh, but doing badly. Uh, so, um, now, what, what is the British role in this? Well, the British role will be the Battle of Luce. Um, and, and we characterise this in lots of books. You see the books from the time, and it's, what's it called, Gary? What's it called? What's it called? What's it called? What's it called? The Big Push. <laughs> That's such a great name. The Big Push. Now, this is the moment when the new armies... Kitchener's armies. Yeah, they would at last begin to play a real role in the war. Uh, but for the French, of course, it's just another day at the office. Yeah, and, and I, I want to, in case I forget, that when you talk about this, that <laughs> the French, the French, I mean, the Artois Champagne, they, they, they suffer 191, nearly 192,000 casualties. They fired 5 million shells. Uh, how does it work for them, uh, Gary? Does it well, go well? It, it achieves absolutely nothing but the casualties, frankly. Because they're facing massively, rapidly, massively improved German defence works and tactics. So the, the, the use of artillery, the use of infantry, everything's better. Now, the British, they're just a minor part of this. They're launching a, a full-scale attack on the widest possible front at Luce on that 25th of September. Now, those words should strike terror. Into your heart. Do you think the British had got massive new quantities of artillery and shells by the 25th of September? So what does that mean? How are they going to attack on the widest possible shells? A widest possible front with more lines to attack, defence works, with redoubts, with, with concrete emplacements, but they're going to have a wider front, roughly the same or not much more artillery, or relatively, sorry, relatively, there's going to, certainly not going to be six uh, a shell every six yards, is there? What what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Now, do the British go into this cheerfully and bravely? Do you say? No, they they, they keep you know. Sir John French comes up with a variety of excuses, but he's he's kept to the mark by Joffre. He was determined that the BEF would attack alongside the Tenth Army uh, in the Artois. 
and Hager, the most unfavourable ground, he calls it. Uh, there's, there's lots of causes. Yeah, genuine reasons for concern. Now, um, because it, it, uh, it, it's not going to be an, uh, an earthquake bombardment. It's not going to be... Oh. So the, uh, the attack was going to be carried out. Who's going to have to carry out the attack? Well, it's 4th Corps, our old friend Rawlinson. 1st Corps... <laughs> Yes. Uh, that's Lieutenant General Sir Hubert Goff, who later becomes much more famous. Uh, uh, they're going to carry out the attack. All, all uh, Haig's First Army again. And they lack the guns and shells for a bombardment on such a wide front. They've only got 533 guns on an 11,200-yard frontage. That's less and than they had at Ober's Ridge, isn't it? And there's two strongly fortified German trench lines. So desperate, desperate, desperate. What could we do? What had happened at Ypres in April 1915 gives an idea. Well, the Germans obviously at that point had first used gas. So I'm assuming that uh, it was decided to use gas in the Battle of Luce. They decided to use a release of cloud gas. Now, this was probably partly to do with Haig, who was always an enthusiast for new weapons, new technologies. Was cloud gas an effective weapon? Well, we'll leave that to other people. It was later on not used and was replaced by gas shells and by uh, uh, Livens projectors, that kind of thing. Isn't it subject to the vagaries of the the wind, Pete? It does, it is. uh, Because cloud gas is not a precision weapon at all. Uh, So there's going to be no hurricane bombardment. uh, instead, they are going to have a four-day preliminary bombardment to sort of grind down the German defences, and then they're going to release the gas, and the infantry will attack across no man's land. Uh, how are the How are the British infantry protecting themselves? Well, they're wearing the uh, the P gas helmet, uh, which is designed to protect them from their own gas. In this particular case. Now, I hope you can do this with your teeth in the current state, but because uh, I can't. <laughs> How do you think the British infantry, they'd had a sort of thing, and it was very good for blowing raspberries. <laughs> That's, uh, you listen to any oral history account, and all the British infantry will say is, oh, it's to go. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> and that's what they all said. Do it again. <laughs> that was rubbish. Excellent. We went too, we went too far, didn't we? This is because was, there was a little rubber mouthpiece. That's it, and they'd blow the uh, the spittle and stuff. It was it's great. That's the British infantry for you. Uh, anyway, I'm not. We're not going to go to the Battle of Loose. We, we've had a, a. We remember we had a Loose Soldiers podcast. Gave an idea of what they suffered. Uh, they advance. Uh, they're, they're they're in it. Are they are they experienced top level infantry or are they newcomers? Well, we, no, you've well, we said. mentioned that uh, this is using the new army, so they're inexperienced troops. Uh, most of them are new army, yeah, and they they uh, they they've been in action before, but not them. The, the new armies had attacked at Suvla Bay, but that's far away in another world. If you know at Gallipoli. Um, there were some early successes, weren't there? They 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 captured the, the town of Luce, but can they get through the German second line? No, no, that's the and, the issue here, isn't it? Because uh, this is the point. We'd shown our tactics got us through one line. We said that uh, they were lucky, in my view, to get across one line with with that attack. Um, um, and then and then it all goes to pieces again. This command and control is a disaster. Still, they haven't sorted that out. Is that Haig's fault? Do you think? No. no, no. I mean, it, the deployment of the reserve divisions is totally disrupted by the problems in command and control. And uh, Sir John Oh, Brent, this the great controversy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's alleged, with some justification, to have held them too far back to be deployed when they were needed, which may or may not have contributed to a loss of momentum. But overall, the loose attack was doomed to failure. I, I I think uh, I think Sir John French did hold them too far back, but I don't think it made any difference to what was going to happen. To, to be honest, I think that the attack's doomed to failure. I think I think you're right. Uh, we will be doomed. I tell you, doomed. I think the ninth Scottish division were there. As it happens, oh, I wasn't I, doing Scottish. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 
your Scottish ancestry peeped out for a moment from behind your kilt. Yes. Um, so uh, the fighting goes on for days, uh, several days. They move up fresh British troops. They're, they're dragged into the Germans, bring up the reserves. And it degenerates. It looks like those French uh, attritional battles, attacks, counterattacks, no real impact for either side. How many British casualties in the end, Gary? Well, it's approaching 50,500, I think, Pete. And German losses, only 20,000. Uh, well, only, what, but it's what, still 20,000. Yeah, yeah. Know. And what is this? How would you describe this sort of warfare? I, I, I'll give you a hint. It's continental warfare, isn't it? We are actually being exposed to the real thing. Now, one point I want to make, and I, I can no longer remember the source of this, but Jack Sheldon, who's a bit of a guru for us on the German side, he, he says that to, to the Germans, they barely notice the Battle of Loos in comparison to the Artois and Champagne attacks, it, that it gets very little attention in their official history. To the British, it gets most of a volume. It, it's a big thing. And of course it's a big thing, because it's our big push. Uh, is it a success? No. It's a complete and utter failure, really. Do we learn from it? I'm not sure we do. We make tactical advances, which are demonstrated, but who do you think makes the bigger tactical advances defensively the germans uh if you look at the roller coaster we've got we've edged up a bit that the, the germans have gone up a lot with that second line uh we've we've got what what, what so we've got multiple lines well constructed trenches deep dugouts the germans can hide in there during the bombardment and emerge the four-day bombardment is not as deadly as a, as a hurricane bombardment, and the Allies will, in 1918, return to the hurricane bombardment, especially once they get uh, uh, pre, uh, pre-registration, pre uh, not pre-registration, where they get shooting off the map and uh, that kind of thing. Um, they've got more machine guns. They've got interlocking fields of fire. How do they use villages and farms? Are they somewhere for the, the, the men to have a nice rest, or are they something else? No, they use them to form strong points. And then, of course, they've got the massed artillery batteries, which are just waiting to destroy anything and everything that shows itself above ground. Now, to be honest, there has to be a scapegoat for the failure. And, and there's somebody that's an obvious candidate. Who would you say that somebody is? Is it Haig? No. Who is it? Well, it's uh, Field Marshal Sir John French. He's the obvious candidate. And, and frankly, uh, probably the right candidate. Um yeah, people often say, in fact, I sometimes say he's stupid. He wasn't stupid. He'd been a good cavalry leader in, in the Boer War. Uh, uh, Haig had admired him greatly. He'd lent him money. We talked about all this. He'd been an asset to his country. I think he's probably out of his depth. In the, in yeah, he wasn't world. up to this role. Uh, he, he, it's, I mean, it's an incredibly demanding role in the frightening new military landscape. He floundered tactically. We've talked about that. He didn't establish the necessary rapport with his French counterparts. He couldn't speak French uh, and he was abrasive. He was. And, and you know, let's, let's not forget, he was also complaining to the press that he didn't have enough adequate resources. So, you know, all round... He was probably... I don't think he understood the admin... A little bit of a shout-out to Rob Thompson. I don't think he ever understood the logistics of the situation either. I don't think he ever got to grip that that it's an important... Logistics are driving this war. I don't think he ever got to grip with it. What he did was, as you rightly said, whine about it to the press. And he didn't have a vision, did he? He didn't... You know, Joffre had a vision and, and an appreciation of the strategic reason for what they were doing. French didn't. No. And, and he loses the confidence of his political masters, I think. Now, th this leads to something. Now, you're going to take us through this because this is a particular interest of yours, aren't you? Yeah. So well, how does it happen? How does, how does French lose his job? Well... <sighs> There's a suggestion that there's some unsavoury manoeuvring going on in the background. And Haig had been in London in July, where the King confirmed the uh, the GCB, which is the Knight's Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath, on him. Uh, and whilst there, they did discuss the leadership of the BEF and, uh, and their suitability. And uh, this is a quote from General Sir Douglas Haig. And he says, The King referred to the friction between Sir John and Lord Kay and hoped I would do all I could to make matters run smoothly. He said he visited the Grand Fleet last week, where all the admirals were on the most friendly terms with one another. <laughs> 
That's not true. <laughs> in the king's opinion, the army would be in the same satisfactory state and there would be no backbiting and unfriendly criticism of superiors if the officer at the head of the army in the field, a most splendid body of troops, was fit for his position. Now, yeah, that's Lord Kay, is, is Kitchener, of course. And he meets Kitchener, doesn't he, during his visit to, to London. And, uh, and Kitchener asks him to write to, his, to Kitchener with his own thoughts on any subject affecting the army. Uh, and Kitchener says he'll treat these letters as secret. Uh, but uh, he was going to do something. And you've got, you've got the quote, haven't you? Yes, he said that uh, he would see my proposals given effect to and must profess ignorance when that happened. Now this is devious, and 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 I think I think Haig does engage or is asked to engage in manoeuvring. However, um, and he gets criticised after his diaries come out. That's the uh, I've forgotten the name of the chap who did it, uh, but the diaries, edited diaries, political diaries, mainly come out in fifty two. He appears to be disloyal to to to, to French, and. Uh, and and I think other other historians, starting with Terrain and onwards through through other people, um, the, the initiative for these secret communications isn't coming from Haig, is it? Um, no. He didn't press for the removal of uh, Sir John French. He'd actually said that it was too late to do that. Um, and he also said that he didn't approve of the secret letters, but, uh. <laughs> but, it, but he could not refuse either the king or Lord Kitchener. Uh. <laughs> but as if we said previously, he's got a bit of history here, hasn't he? Because he, when he was in the Sudan, he was writing to Evelyn Wood, or Evelyn Wood, depending on your choice of pronunciation. So he has got a bit of a history in uh, writing his thoughts, somewhat unguarded thoughts. Uh, I times. want to make click, click, I think Haig is... I don't think he behaves entirely honourably in this, but I, w- I want to make an alternative view. As this is not Haig's responsibility. This is the the best analogy is uh, the murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, where Poirot solves the mystery, and it turns out that they poisoned, stabbed, shot, and everybody on the train. Everybody except Poirot has done for this bastard that nobody liked. And the point is that generals, politicians, the king, everybody had had enough of Sir John French. It's not one man, Haig, manoeuvring to get rid of him. This is just a general agreement that it's time for him to go. And I think Sir John French is lucky he wasn't poisoned, stabbed, shot and generally buggered about in that manner. Yeah, Uh, and I think it's also fair to say that although, you know, Haig does behave in a... a, a an underhand way, I think he does. But it's not so that he replaces Sir John French. And the whole point, everybody wants to to uh, be rid of French because they believe it is in the best interests of the British Empire and the army. And I believe Haig believed that genuinely, but obviously he was not unaware that he was the leading candidate, especially as French had done for Smith Dorian in some senses. Hamilton was done for by and Grierson had died. So and Grierson, there, yeah. there isn't that much now. Um, so 1915, Haig has done well as an innovator at uh, Neuve Chapelle. I, I, I know the offensive was a failure, but we agree that he'd failed. I think, at Albers Ridge, Albers Battle of Albers uh, Bridge and Battle of Festubert. No denying that, is there? And uh, I don't think he could have done any better than he did at the Battle of Luce. Uh, again, he was an innovator, but did it work, Gas? No, it didn't. Uh, but now he's going to control. He's, in December, he's appointed as Commander-in-Chief of the BEF. He's going to move. His role's changing. Why is his role changing? He's not just an army commander. He's, in fact, he isn't an army commander now. What is he now? Well, it's 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 this this more intangible role of commander in chief. He's responsible for the overall direction of the British armies on the Western Front. I'll tell you one thing, and and we both agree this: in 1916, the battles are, are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Everything is getting bigger. The 1915 battles like Loose are going to appear like skirmishes. Leuve Chapelle's a skirmish compared to what's going on. And and the French were already fighting battles like that, weren't they? You're you you, you, you you're second to none in your admiration of the French. Yeah, I mean, the French sacrifice is what gives the BEF the time to gather its resources. 
you know, soon you've got the new battalions of Kitchener's army is going to expand the BF into a truly continental army. But that's only possible because of the sacrifice of the French. Oh, uh, so that we, we pay tribute to them. And Haig would have done as well. So the masses of uh, new soldiers are arriving. They're terrifyingly inexperienced, though. But both the most, a lot of the TA battalions, especially the second battalions and third battalions, the, 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 uh, the service battalions, are, will the Germans give them chance to attain full maturity as fighting units? And who's in charge of that? Who is going to oversee that process? Well, now it's Haig's task to oversee the processes. He's now the Commander-in-Chief of the BEF. And we'll see how he does in 1916 uh, in a later podcast. It'll probably be uh, two or three months from now. Well, thank you, Gary. That that went as well as could be expected, I think, if you have your teeth. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?